have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner World War II was a popular war, and so it took greater conviction to be a conscientious objector to that war. We have the privilege of talking to two of the surviving conscientious objectors of that war, George Watson, 91 years old, and Jack Phillips, now 86. Their experience in confronting the draft and in serving in the civilian public service had a profound effect on the remaining 60-plus years of their lives. Both Jack and George grew up Methodist, a relative hotbed of pacifist convictions in some places at that time. George had already become a Quaker by the time the U.S. entered into World War II, while Jack, supported by his Methodist church, served about five years of alternative service, finding a home in the Religious Society of Friends along the way. Both currently reside in the Twin Cities. Jack is a member of Twin Cities Friends Meeting, while George is a member of Minneapolis Friends Meeting. I want to welcome the two of you to Spirit in Action. Jack and George, it's very fine to join you here in Minneapolis. I want to invite both of you to start out right away by talking about what led you to become conscience objectors during World War II. Jack? Well, Mark, in my case, it began... Very young. Uh, when I was a boy, my father had been fighting in World War One. Uh, that was before I was born. But he once at the dinner table told me a story about being on the battlefield after a battle in France. 
And they were walking around in the evening, and there were dead bodies, both German and American and French. And some of his buddies were taking things off the dead bodies, and he said he didn't want to do that. But one of them came up to him and said, look at this. And it was a German belt, and the buckle, a big brass buckle, said, Gott mit uns. I sort of knew what that meant, but my father said, that means, of course, God with us. And that was a shock to me as a boy, eight or ten years old, because I had pretty much imbibed the view that the Germans were the bad guys, and they knew they were the bad guys. And so the idea that they thought God was on their side just started me thinking, even as a boy. A little later, I saw All Quiet on the Western Front, that very powerful anti-war movie from the German point of view. The story about the belt buckle made me think, and this movie sort of convinced me right then and there that war is pointless. That was the point of the movie. That it was a pointless war. A little later, I read the autobiography of Gandhi. What that taught me is that there are alternatives to war. Gandhi had succeeded in achieving victory and in conflict without violence. And so that was a big step in my thinking. This is all before I got to college. The idea that there were alternatives to war led me into reading other things like Richard B. Gregg's classic, The Power of Nonviolence. So when I got to college at Northwestern University, I was already ready to join the peace movement. And between the two world wars, there was a big peace movement, big on the college campuses and also in the general public. We tried to work to keep this country out of World War II. And so uh, I was active in the peace movement there. I was in a Methodist church at that time in which the pastor was Ernest Fremont Tittle, who was a well-known pacifist. The result of his preaching and guidance was that 30 young men in that church chose to be conscientious objectors in that Methodist church in Evanston, Illinois.
Jack, I believe you were born in 1920, so that means that when war was declared, when the U.S. entered into World War II, you would have been just about 21. Was it hard? Wasn't there a lot of pressure for you to be a great warrior for the United States and to protect our country? Didn't you have to fight with those feelings too? Yes, it's a choice, and there are two sides to every choice. So, of course, I did think about the other side, and I didn't experience a great deal of difficult pressure, partly because I guess I was in this church where there was so much support. However, my father was a problem. He never attacked me or denounced me. He had been a patriotic fighter in World War I, and I know very well that he would have very much have liked to see his son in a uniform fighting for his country in World War II. It just made him sad. And I was aware that one reason he was sad was that when his colleagues, he was in business, would ask him, what's that son of yours doing? He was not at all happy to have to tell them what I had done. We had some talks, and I tried to help him see my point of view, but still, that was some pressure on me just knowing how hard it was on him. One reconciliation we had, one I did volunteer later, getting ahead of the story, to be a guinea pig in vitamin experiments in Minnesota. He came up to see me, and when he saw what I was doing, that I was actually getting experimental beriberi, he said, well, Jack, I might have known that you would do something like this. But that's about as far as that went. He wasn't saying you were a fussy eater or something, was he? <laughs> George, your experience would be a little bit different because you're a little bit older, five years older, being born in 1915. How did you get involved in becoming a conscience objector during this immensely popular war, from one point of view at least, that we really were the white hats? Well, to start again at an early age, I grew up in a very peaceable family. Not pacifist, that was not expressly stated at any point, and my father had tried to volunteer in World War I, but he was a high school principal, and so he wasn't allowed to. <laughs> but, for instance, any thought that I might be fighting with my schoolmates would bring a great pain to my parents, and I was aware of that. While their Methodist background was not as strongly peace-oriented as a Quaker background might be, they still were very strongly in favor of peace. This, I think, shaped my own behavior. The Methodist Church, in which I also grew up, and a big Methodist church in suburban Cleveland, taught me to be a pacifist because that was very much the orientation of their youth program when I was in junior high school and high school. A very radical program, which was very exciting to me, but I became disillusioned when the church fired the two young pastors who were the leaders of the movement. They were fired for being too radical. So that really disillusioned me with the church. But the teaching stuck. So as I left the church, I went on to other activities that were related to peace. I joined the Socialist Party. In the 1932 elections, I canvassed my neighborhood for the socialist candidate for governor of Ohio, who was the pastor of the Evangelical and Reformed Church up the street from where I lived. All of this was background of attitudes and essentially a belief of what a Christian life called for. And then as I went on into college, I became a political scientist, majored in political science, became more and more disillusioned about war as I read more about it. 
I also had seen All Quiet on the Western Front and had read all the appropriate anti-war and pacifist literature. It all added up to me to a complete readiness to take the position of conscience objector. This crystallized for me in my senior year in college when Bishop Paul Jones, who was a noted national pacifist leader, came to the campus of Miami University where I was a student, gave a series of lectures in Easter week, and while he was there, he organized a chapter of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the general religious pacifist organization, and I was a member of it along with my fiance Elizabeth who had a strong commitment to Gandhi to reinforce this kind of attitudes. So, in effect, I became certain that I was a conscience objector at that time. I learned a great deal that helped to reinforce my ideas in my professional studies. But also, in 1937, Elizabeth and I were both graduate students at the University of Chicago. We were married in the summer of 37. We began attending the 57th Street Meeting of Friends on the University of Chicago campus, and this helped strongly to reinforce all of my feelings and attitudes and beliefs and to read a great deal and to become reasonably sophisticated about the spiritual and practical grounds of an anti-war position. After that, I started teaching. My first job was at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, Illinois, I was teaching there at the time the Draft Act was passed in 1940. Carbondale was a small town of about 7,500 people in southern Illinois, and the college had about 2,000 students at that time, although it was beginning to grow to be a great university. And I found that there was no one else in town who was prepared to advise students who wanted to be conscientious objectors. So even though I was about the same age as some of them, I still felt I had to take that on. I had an established position. I knew what it meant to be a conscientious objector, how you provided a rational argument for it. I also, as a political scientist, understood the law and how you proceeded in relation to the draft law. And so I undertook to advise young people who thought they might want to be conscientious objectors and help them decide whether that was what they really believed, because I didn't want to sell them on it. I wanted to help them make up their own minds. As a result, the draft board came to know me well because I often represented students there. When the time came that I might be drafted, they were quite happy to do so. I think the two of you faced your draft boards at different points in the war. For Jack, I think it was quite a bit earlier. What was your experience with the draft board? Was it smooth sailing? You went in and they said, oh yeah, you're a good religious boy. Did you have to spell out why you believed this? What were the beliefs that you held up to and what was your experience with your draft board? Jack? There's considerable paperwork before you appear before the draft board. You give your reasoning on paper, and so I I used arguments about Gandhi, arguments from Richard B. Gregg about the effectiveness of nonviolence as an alternative. Since the law required that it not be a personal ethical decision but a religious decision, I did write into it my religious beliefs, but they did not give me. They gave me classification 1A, which is top physical condition and qualification, and that was it for them. So I had to ask for a hearing on my application as a CO, 
This is a long time ago, Mark. I probably don't remember as much as I should, but Ernest Fremont Tittle, my pastor, was willing to go with me to the hearing. They pretty much listened. They didn't argue. I remember one thing which is probably be interesting, although I feel a little conflicted about, about it. I guess one of the board members said, well, what would you do if a Nazi or a German or some criminal attacked your girlfriend? What I said was, well, my girlfriend and I have talked this over, and we have agreed that I should protect her so far as I can in a nonviolent way by reasoning and pleading, and my girlfriend agreed with that. That caused a little consternation among people there, but Ernest Fremont Tittle thought it was a good answer. Anyway, that's about all I remember. And I did hear in the U.S. Mail later that I was granted the conscientious objector classification 4E. What was your experience, George? Well, even though I'm no older, my experience was several years after Jack's <laughs> because I had started on my career, started having a family. We had three children by the time the drafting really got seriously underway. There was a, a rule in the selective service system providing deferment for all the fathers of three children automatically so that I was able to go ahead to work during most of the war without the danger of being drafted. But after the Battle of the Bulge, which as I recall was in December of 1944, in which the German army staged a very strong counteroffensive, everybody in Washington became anxious. So they wiped out this rule about fathers of three children. Draft boards all over the country refused to draft the fathers of three children. But my draft board in Carbondale, and at that time you still were attached to the one where you first registered, my draft board, was, I think, was quite glad to get me. So my experience was somewhat parallel to Jack's. I was sent a notice that I was classified 1A. But I had been a Quaker for seven years and had held this pacifist position for nine years, and I had thought it through and articulated it strongly. And so I wrote a letter restating my position and asking for a hearing with the board. They could see that my case was so strong there was no point denying it. So as with Jack, they sent me the 4E classification. And so I went into civilian public service, but not until March of 1945 when the war was nearly over. I wonder if either of you can provide other stories of your experience with the attitude of people in the United States. I think that it was a fairly popular war, that is to say, people really thought we had to be there. And maybe they thought even more when they saw the pictures of the people from the concentration camps who were freed. Did you experience conflicts? Did you have people around you who were very conflicted about why you were shirking your duty? Jack? Well, the nearest thing I can come to answering that question, Mark, is uh, I'd like to just go back to that hearing because that question they asked me, what would you do if a criminal attacked your girlfriend? I think everybody realized this is a tough question, and I've read a lot of theologians who are open-minded who say that no one can be sure about what they would do in a situation like that and other answers. I did feel conflicted about the answer I gave, and I felt not too composed about that answer afterwards. But as for the public in general, Mark, you know, there was a big difference between World War I and World War II. In World War I, most of the American churches lined up behind the military or behind the war, 
There was much preaching in the churches, backing our cause and denouncing the Germans. In between the two world wars, since World War I was such a disaster, and one argument I like to make is there might not have been a Hitler and a World War II if it had not been for World War I, which was such a pointless, destructive conflict. And meanwhile, then, the churches had thought it through between the wars and decided that they had been mistaken to line up with one side militarily in World War I, and they would not do that again. And you would hear preaching saying things like, well, God doesn't take sides in these wars. War is God's judgment upon us. We shouldn't be fighting them, and we shouldn't drag God into it in a partisan way. That was a widespread view among the churches, and I think it probably had an effect on the public so that they didn't agree with us, COs, but they tolerated us on those grounds. That was my feeling. Certainly in my church and in Evanston, there was probably a toleration and a willingness to say, well, that's their point of view. Uh, they have a right to it, I suppose. Uh, so I have to say, Mark, that I was never sworn at or cussed out by anybody or called a yellow belly in my presence. What was your experience, George? Pretty much the same. I spent most of the war in urban centers, which were not the places where I think that kind of nastiness was most likely to occur. The fact that I was a Quaker and a fairly prominent Quaker by the time I was drafted meant that people understood that I belonged to a group that had this odd belief and kind of accepted it as natural, I guess, so that I observed in general that members of the traditional peace churches, the Friends, the Brethren, and the Mennonites, were kind of recognized as a sort of a legitimate exception to the high-powered military patriotism that was widespread in the country. At least, I never had any unpleasant experiences, and instead experienced quite a lot of support. For instance, in the Second World War, conscientious objectors had no pay, and no money at all for dependents, so that when I was drafted, my family's income was cut off completely. Elizabeth and I had lived in a settlement house in Chicago, a smaller place much like Hull House, during one of the years of graduate school, and the head resident of that settlement house called Elizabeth when he heard about the drafting of fathers of three children and said, is George going to be drafted? And Elizabeth said, well, I guess he is. He said, will you come back here, work for me. We'll provide housing and meals for you and the children. There'll be a free well baby clinic. And there's a Lanham Act nursery that was a heavily subsidized nursery school to encourage women to do war work. The Lanham Act nursery that the children could go to. So that we had this kind of support structure offered to us outside our own families, outside the religious society of friends, in addition to support we got from those sources. The one issue of this sort that really got raised, and I didn't know it until after the war, but Elizabeth told me that my mother had talked to her very seriously, trying to urge her to persuade me to change my position, not because she thought it was wrong, but because she thought it would ruin my life career. And since Elizabeth and I were very sure of our complete agreement on this subject, it didn't create any real problem, except my mother. That was really the only example I faced of someone saying I shouldn't do it. Certainly, internally, it was a hard kind of choice, 
as hard as such a choice could be, I think, because after all, a war against Hitler was about as, what shall I say, as virtuous a war uh, as one could imagine. I frequently got annoyed with some people I knew who refused to believe how bad Hitler and the Nazis were because that made it harder to be a pacifist if you admitted what was going on. Well, I didn't have that problem. My position was very strong. I believed that if you do the right thing in the long run, it's better for the world than if you do the wrong thing, regardless of what the evil is that's being done by somebody else. And so I didn't find it so difficult for myself after I thought it through. But I think it was very difficult for a lot of people to be a pacifist in the war against Hitler. Jack? A little more on that question, Mark. When I was at camp in Merrim, Indiana, doing soil conservation, one of the men there was a musician, and he organized not quartets, but octets. And we went around, he got invitations from churches, and for several years there, the men at Merrim, Indiana, I was in one of those octets, we would go to a church, country church, and we would sing as part of the program. I was a little surprised at the good reception we got. We were never challenged on our position. We were never threatened or made to feel that we were unwelcome. So that's just some data there for your question. Of course, the fact that the COs who were drafted were putting on pressure for other kinds of work besides soil conservation, where they could do some humanitarian work, this was happening, and there were more and more camps and units set up doing hospital work in mental hospitals or other kinds of medical work. And I think this was known, and the fact that COs were doing humanitarian work was probably part of the favorable attitude toward us. George? One other evidence of this sort that occurs to me, Big Flats was, as I said, very close to the town of Elmira, where Elmira College, a women's college, was located. Most of the men in camp with me were much younger than I was. They were students, unmarried, just arrived at draft age. And the girls from the college fraternized quite freely with the men from our camp. There didn't seem to be any problems arising in their attitudes or in the college authorities' attitudes, so far as I could learn. I want to ask you shortly about the alternative to military service that you performed, but I think I want to ask you just one or two more questions. You became conscientious objectors. You expressed yourself as that way, and you certainly had some track history behind each of you to justify that. Are you of the same opinion today? If you had to do over again, would you do just the same thing? And having had another 60 years of experience in your life, have you seen wars where you think you maybe should have participated or maybe would have liked to have participated because it was the lesser of the evils? Can either of you speak about how your beliefs have changed or maybe stayed the same since then? George? I think they have matured, but they haven't changed. Uh, there has not been any war that I would have been willing to participate in under any circumstances that I can conceive of because I do believe that that participation in a war would help to turn the human race on a downhill course instead of an uphill course. The particular circumstances of any war involving the prejudice of one side against another and terrible behavior by one side or both still don't justify abandoning that position. So I have not found any reason to change my mind in any degree 
and continuing to study war, to teach about war to some extent, to participate in all kinds of anti-war demonstrations has strengthened rather than weakened my position. Jack? I have certainly, as everyone has, experienced horrendous situations like Milai, like Abu Ghraib and Hiroshima, where these almost prove the thesis that war is hell. Another way in which war is hell, of course, is what it does to not only the victims, but the men who have to be the perpetrators of these horrendous atrocities. It took me a while to learn that you always hear that soldiers coming back from war don't want to talk about it. And I assumed that was because the horrible things they had seen, which is probably true, but even more so, it may be the things that they found themselves doing or felt compelled to do, which they had a very hard time living with, which is another way of saying war is hell. And so uh, those experiences are so overpowering that if I ever see a reason for having a war, those facts pretty much bring me back to reality. Back when both of you were facing the draft, the draft law was written very clearly in terms of religious words, religious affiliation, religious beliefs. It isn't so now. It's expressed as a wider moral framework that one has to adhere to. I haven't heard either one of you say, I couldn't participate in war because Jesus said, love your enemies. Did you have those ideas at that time? Was it strongly allied with Christian faith? I've heard both of you mention stuff about Gandhi, for instance. How important was Christian faith and teaching and the background of Methodist Church in your beliefs, or how much is it from wider sources? George? I think I would have to say that the older I have become, the wider the sources are. <laughs> that certainly Gandhi had a very strong impact when I was young enough to be courting my wife because she was already strongly committed to Gandhi and therefore strengthened my own interest in Gandhi and my willingness to pay attention to what he had said and done. Yet, as I have grown older, I find so many people who find in Buddhism exactly the same kind of thing that I believe in and try to practice. So that I think it is not exclusively Christian. It's certainly not exclusively Quaker or Mennonite or anything of the sort. It seems to me that it is essentially an inherent part of all religions, that religions get distorted by the political systems in which they are embedded, and that the denial of this fundamental truth has come from those political imperatives rather than from the religious beliefs. So while I'm very much impressed by what Jesus said and did, that's far from the only thing that I find to be important in supporting my own commitment to nonviolence and to creative, peaceful solutions of problems. Jack? Yes, I would certainly personally be willing to cite Jesus as a pacifist and an anti-war teacher as Gandhi. It's clear to me that he was a believer in nonviolence and his sense of the worth of every person as a child of God would not allow him to use a sword or a spear and certainly not a machine gun. I'm very puzzled by these conservative Christians who think that they are being Christian and taking sides in a war and becoming soldiers and bombers and wielders of machine guns. Can they visualize Jesus doing any of those things? So yes, Jesus is an influence on me. and I did make the appeal to that in my hearing and also to the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. 
I'd like to ask you both a bit about your experience. I think the laws are much different now in terms of what happens with a CO or with a person who wants to object to participation in war. During World War II, it was the first time there was the classification that both of you, I think, entered into, and they set up civilian public service camps. It was kind of a training ground for anti-war activists, I think. I think that they chose instead during Vietnam War and have machinery now that could be put into place, which isolates people. If you're a conscience objector, you don't get put with other conscience objectors. So could you tell me what your experience was with CPS and other programs for conscience objectors during World War II? Jack? There was a term, second miler, that was used at Merriman, Indiana by some COs against others because there were divisions among us. There were those who were not particularly religious and were very not only anti-military but anti-state and to the extent that they thought the very act of conscription was a violation of fundamental human rights. For those of us who had come from religious traditions and had a motivation to be a good example and maybe do humanitarian work or even soil conservation in such a way as to earn respect from the population in general, we were called second milers. Maybe someone said, well, Jesus said go the second mile if a man commands you to go a mile. So there were those differences among ourselves. And there was a very lively life of the mind argument about these issues. Also, all kinds of study classes and reading and following the war and demanding uh, better opportunities to serve in projects like the guinea pig project I was in and like hospital work. What jobs did you actually do as part of your service? I think you spent five years or so as a conscience objector serving our country. Well, my first job was to take a shovel and go out on a truck with other men and be dropped off in a field somewhere and make a ditch, a drainage ditch for soil conservation or a terrace. When I was asked to go to North Dakota after nine months in the Indiana camp to Trenton, Tom Potts was the director out there, and he had decided that I would go and be the cook. I don't know what gave him that idea, but I went and I had to get a crew and be the cook in the camp. I felt a little unhappy about this because I had no particular skill. I did it. So you asked my work. Well, I was the cook in Trenton, North Dakota, and I learned on the job. The first time I made a pie, I made 30 pies. After nine months at Trenton, some recruiters came through from a project at the University of Minnesota where they were doing experiments with human nutrition, and I volunteered, and they chose me to go there and be a guinea pig in vitamin deprivation. For eight months, our diets were controlled, and we were on four different levels. We didn't know this at the time. It was a double-blind experiment, but we were all deprived of vitamin D at some level. I found later that I was on the lowest level, and I contracted experimental beriberi, which means that I had a hard time walking. I would come to a curb, and I couldn't lift my foot up to the curb. That was the effect on me of the experimental beriberi. I was thinking to myself, oh, well, I guess I'm contributing here by, uh, by enduring this kind of disadvantage and suffering. After that experiment was over, Mark, they decided that my condition was such that they didn't want to release me. They wanted to keep me around for observation. So they gave me a job for the next experiment, which was the famous experiment of guinea pigs at Minnesota, where 36 young men, volunteers, would be starved. It's my belief that this project was instigated by the COs who were there at the time I was there. Harold Getzko, who was an older draftee who was a psychologist, 
conceived the idea that we could be starving guinea pigs and we would perform this service as a way of helping recuperation, or the rehabilitation of the starving people of Europe as a result of the war and the blockades. In both World War I and World War II, there were blockades and starvation. So 36 volunteers were brought in from all over the country to be starved. Ted was raised in Ohio, where brave men regularly grow. He wasn't surprised to get a letter calling him to the war. He was most polite and he wanted to do right, so he wrote right back and said, I've learned from my people that I must not fight, but I'd like to work instead. Oh, I'm not afraid to call, folks, I'm not afraid to die. I've just got something else in mind that I would like to try. Give me a shovel instead of a gun, I'll say so long for now. And if I die, I'll die making something instead of tearing something down. He said goodbye to those he loved, wiped his mother's tears. Don't fret, folks, I know what I'm doing. I'll be back in a couple of years. He picked up his sack and he didn't look back. He bravely left for the war. Took a Bible and a shovel and a lot of hope. He knew what he was going for. Oh, I'm not afraid to go. Mother, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be the one to make another son's mother cry. Give me a shovel instead of a gun. Say so long for now. If I die, I'll die making something instead of tearing something down. He worked among the people of that far off Asian land. Many who would be the enemy Became the friend of the brave young man He helped in the crops and he worked in the shops And talked whenever he could Of how he dreamed of a peaceful world Where life would be sweet and good Oh, I'm not afraid to be here, friends I'm not afraid to die just can't shake this feeling inside We can live together if we try Give me a shovel instead of a gun And lend me a hand for now And if we die, we'll die making something Instead of tearing something down He fell in love with a brave young woman Took her to be his bride she shared his dream of a world gone right, worked right by his side. But the war got to the love so new, a bullet left the young groom dead. In her tears of grief, the bride heard a gentle voice that said, Tell him I wasn't afraid to go, my love. I wasn't afraid. To die. I just didn't want to be the man to make another man's woman cry. 
Put my shovel beside my grave Maybe someone else will find To be brave enough to die Making something instead of tearing something down Put my shovel beside my grave I'll say so long for now Don't worry my love We're gonna make it I know we're gonna make it Somehow And what did you do during your service, George? Well, my service was relatively short since I went in late in the war. I had three months at what was at that time called an intake camp. You would go initially to a camp for three months while they were deciding where to send you for a longer term. And the one I went to was called Big Flats. It was in New York State in a state forest, and it was a project using axes to clear out the forest in winter and then of nursing the beds of seedling trees during the summer that eventually grow up to be planted in new forests. But at the end of the three months, I was transferred to the National Service Board for Religious Objectors, which was the administrative office that coordinated the work of the Quakers and the Brethren and the Mennonites that administered the camps. And it was also the buffer between them and the selective service system, which was run by the military and was often very difficult to deal with. That did suit my training and background and interests, and so I found it a satisfactory kind of work to do. But, of course, I was frustrated during all the time I was in civilian public service, that I could not contribute anything to support my wife and children. There was no pay, there was no dependence allowance at all for conscientious objectors. I was given the barest subsistence when I was in camp. I got a bunk and three meals a day, and I think it was something like 35 cents a month for toothpaste and other things. Uh, when I was in Washington, what they did was to give me $65 a month to live in wartime Washington. So it was carefully calculated to leave absolutely nothing over for any other purpose except survival. How did your time with conscience objectors during World War II change or affect you? Specifically, I was wondering if spending time with these other groups of conscience objectors in the CPS camps or elsewhere, if that reinforced your attitudes or affected you in other ways. George? Certainly a lot of my attitudes were reinforced. I made quite a large number of strongly committed personal friends whose friendship lasted lifelong. Some of them have already died. In that sense, it was not only something that was a benefit to me, but it was of benefit to the Quakers, and I'm sure it was to the other religious groups involved as well. I was very active in the American Friends Service Committee and a number of other Quaker organizations during the years between then and now. 
During the 25 years or so after the end of the war, I saw a process by which a large proportion of the leadership of the Religious Society of Friends came from the men who had been in civilian public service, tied to one another by a series of connections that reinforced their beliefs and their willingness to work for the cause they believed in. How did it go for you, Jack? During these years in camps and units, I was close to Quakers and uh, felt that that was my destiny. And uh, that decision to become Quaker came later when Mary and I, my wife, both made the decision. There are many, many people to admire. These COs in these camps and units were well-educated and highly motivated and highly critical spirits. So uh, I learned a lot from association with some of these thoughtful and critical minds. And yes, and I made friends, as George says, which I've maintained ever since. There are more individualistic and eccentric types than you find in the general population. So that made it interesting. Jack, you were Methodist going in, and I guess you identified with Quakers going through the system. Why didn't you get reinforced as a Methodist in there, considering the number of Methodists that must have gone in? Well, that's probably because, although Methodists are not exactly dogmatic, nevertheless, they do recite the creed in every service. And the idea that Quakers did not have a creed made me feel that that's where I belonged. And, of course, my vocation was philosophy. Although there are philosophers who recite a creed, it's a little hard for me to see why they would. So I just felt more and more that a Quaker meeting for worship, where people are gathered in silence and waiting for guidance spiritually, was a better place for me. What difference has this made in the path that you've chosen for yourself in the past 60 years? Um, I can't claim to have been much of a peace activist. I have attended a lot of Quaker peace meetings and peace programs. I've done some demonstration walks. I've made it clear to my students what I think about nonviolence and war. And I have all my life tithed, at least, that is to say, donations to peace and justice organizations from our small income. So maybe I've had as much effect by support of peace organizations and justice organizations financially than any other way. And there's a program called Alternatives to Violence, or the Alternatives to Violence program, where you can take a training weekend, and you can be taken through, not theoretically, but practically, how to be nonviolent in situations and how to deal with confrontation and how to express in behavior the commitment that there is that of God in every person. Certainly some of the leaders really impressed me with their gentleness and their care for everyone in the program, including me. So we all felt after the weekend that we were we had become more nonviolent. Jack, one other thing I know about you is that you were, or maybe are, active in what used to be called the Friends Committee on Unity with Nature, which is now known as Quaker Earth Care Witness. Is that part of or connected to your nonviolent attitudes? Well, yes, it certainly is. I should have made that connection myself. Yes, as a civilization, we are trashing the earth in a very violent way. This earth is such a unique, precious thing in the cosmos. The earth is unique. It is precious. It is beautiful. There ought to be another commandment. There are a lot of candidates for the 11th commandment. I propose one which would go like this. 
treat the health and beauty and fitness of the earth as you would treat your own body, health and fitness and beauty. We are engaged in a war on the earth. It's very destructive. The concept that war is hell applies to the way we treat the earth, and I think about that a lot, and I work with people who, who feel the same way, and I just hope that we will learn to value and cherish and respect the earth for the unique special gift it has come to us from the cosmos. The words you say there I resonate with very strongly. George, you've had a lot of years, 60-plus years, since World War II in your service as conscience objector then. How has your life been of a thread since that time? Well, I would say that my experience as a conscientious objector and my other experiences as a Quaker in those early years have deeply influenced my life ever since and that I have, in a sense, tried to make it a continuing projection of the values that I was absorbing during those years. I have been almost continuously a committee member of the American Friends Service Committee I have served on some of the national committees, including the committee that has oversight of the Quaker program at the United Nations office in New York. And I have, even though it's not my teaching specialty, I have devoted a great deal of attention to peace and the political problems involved in peace and peacemaking have served on peace committees, have demonstrated in, I think, the two biggest peace walks that have been held, the one in Central Park in New York that probably had a million people, and one subsequent to that in London that probably had a half million. I have tried to use my opportunities and my capacities in places where they would do some good a continuous process in which almost all of my extracurricular activities beyond my work have been directed toward peace in one way or another. And one of the important ways has been in the area of race relations. I think race relations in the United States is one of the most serious problems of world peace. In Chicago and subsequently in other places, I have tried to be very much engaged in finding solutions to the problems of living together in peace, of appreciating one another's cultures, and of supporting one another's rights. I have picked my jobs in terms of their relation to these values as well. When I got out of civilian public service, I went to teach at Roosevelt University in Chicago, which was a new institution founded in 1945 on principles of human equality the only university in the country at that time that did not have any quota system to limit the number of people of color or the number of Jews or of any other group who were in the student body or the faculty. Most of my career was spent 26 years on the faculty and administration of that, I think, wonderful social experiment that has kind of almost outlived its usefulness because everybody else has followed suit in the time since. When we had to leave Chicago in 1972 because of Elizabeth's health, I went to Friends World College, a small experimental Quaker college on Long Island, where I was the leader of a three-man presidency. And Friends World College is devoted to sending students abroad 
to study the language and culture of other countries by living and working in those countries under a carefully organized academic program that, in my experience, leaves them better educated than any other college graduates I have known. So, yes, I would say that my experience in CPS and the other experiences that surrounded it, led up to it, and reinforced it has been one of the dominant motivations in my life ever since. Jack and George, you're now 86 and 91 years old. Do you still have gatherings of people who were together, conscience objectors from World War II? There are not many of us left. In my friends' meeting, which has around 250 members, I'm the only one left. Two years ago, there were three of us, but now I'm, I'm the only one. Is there any guidance you would like to offer to the young men and women who might be facing the draft or who might be choosing to go in the military now? Is there anything that you can say to them from your lifetime of experience? Jack? Well, the best I can advise is to think and become aware. Become aware, for example, of the deception that may be involved in preparing wars and try to uh, not be deceived. Try to think about yourself and what kind of a heritage you want to leave. You probably do know the atrocities that are done in war, which you might become a part of, and how many wars seem to have been futile or cause more harm than good. But it's for you to think through and to examine your commitments and values. George, do you have something to share? Well, I guess what I have to say really comes down to much the same thing. Essentially, it seems to me that anyone facing the question of participation in military service in wartime, and now it's not only men, it's women who have to face this, anyone facing this should try to do several things in order to be ready. The first is to try to think through what it is you believe in, what you think the world ought to be like, and what ought to happen in order for the world to be like that. What kind of person you think you would like to be and what you need to do in order to become that kind of person. And then, of course, to study the consequences of war. And in the end, follow your own conscience. That's what we all have to do. I want to thank both of you for spending the time with me, sharing your experience. A very important part of your life. It's now maybe 60 years in the past, but I think in a lot of ways it's very much affecting the present day what you've lived through and what you've passed on to us. Thank you, both Jack and George. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Mark. There's obviously much more that could be said. It's a very large topic. You've been listening to an interview with George Watson and Jack Phillips, both of them conscience objectors during World War II. Music featured in this program has included With God on Our Side by Joan Baez and Brave Man from Ohio, by Andy and Terry Murray. You can hear this program and others via my website, northernspiritradio.org, where you'll also find useful links related to these programs. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher.
Enjoy in selflessness.